Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor, Emma Ajimang, Personal Finance Writer, and Special Guest Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity International. If you're an income investor, you'll be all too familiar with how increasingly hard it is to find high-yielding investments at a reasonable price in the current environment of low interest rates and paltry yields. But product providers have been trying to address this issue with a series of exchange-traded fund launches, or ETFs for short. This means there are now more than 36 equity income ETFs on the London Stock Exchange tracking high-dividend-paying companies. Kate, you've been looking at these funds in detail. What kind of yields do they offer and how do they compare to standard indices? Well, the yields tend to be 1% or 2% above the standard index. And generally, their returns across the board have been a bit higher, but they do have a short track record. So it's kind of hard to make two sweeping generalisations about it. But yeah, they do have definitely an uplift on yield and in total return terms have done quite well. How do they generate these attractive yields? Well, they tend to, they do it in different ways. So you can have ETFs that take a backward looking approach. So they will look for companies, for example, who have been consistently raising dividends for 10 or in some cases 20 years. Or you have those that look for companies which will pay high dividends in the future. So they use forecast dividend measures. So they all take a slightly different approach. Some look to like backwards for a long way, 10, 20 years. Some look just over one year, some look forwards. So there are a range of ways of doing it, but they're all focused on yield and they're focused on dividends. Okay, this all sounds great, but there's always two sides to a story. Is there anything not so good about these strategies and about these ETFs? Well, I guess the first thing to say is that there is an issue with looking at yield generally in that if all you're focused on is a very high yield what you could be seeing there is something which is paying out a consistent dividend but where a share price has been tanking because obviously yield is just a relationship between payout and share price so if you were to just select the very high yielding stocks you could have stocks which are at risk of dividend cuts so that is an issue to think about with all of these things and income focus generally. Although there are ways that all of these ETFs kind of try and moderate against that. But the issue with the backward looking ones is that the further back you look for, you know, stocks which are paying out consistent dividends, the smaller your pool of investment gets. So these tend to be quite concentrated. And they also restrict you from holding things which might have cut dividends at some point in the last 10 years, but which might pay out quite high dividends in the future. The issue with forward-looking ones is that you don't get that long-term sustainability of income, which you get from some of the stocks which appear in the backward-looking measures, and they can be a bit more volatile. But then you're obviously getting the benefit of hopefully stocks which pay out high income in the future. And just very generally, there is also the issue that if you are tracking these kind of high income paying or sustainable, consistent income paying stocks, you do tend to be more exposed to these kind of bond proxy stocks, which, you know, might be doing very well now, but in a rising market might not do as well. But I mean, you know, that is the same if you're kind of if you're doing that by any other means, that's not a quirk of the ETF specifically. Okay. Now, do any of these ETFs try to avoid these potential traps? Yes. Well, I mean, Wisdom Tree, for example, instead of looking at yield as as a percentage, it looks at cash yield. So it's looking at the total cash sum paid and weights the stocks in its index according to that. So it says that that tries to get around this kind of value trap issue. 
And they do all have um, caps on things like stocks and on things like sectors and geographies to try and mitigate that. And quite a few of them have quality screens as well. Um, so this isn't just a case for most of them that they're just taking high yielding stocks and, you know, that's it. A lot of them will look at balance sheets, PEs of the stocks they hold to make sure that they're holding high quality dividend payers. So, you know, you just need to kind of drill down into the fact sheet. And I've highlighted quite a few of those screens in this in this article. OK. Now, Micah, you've written a book on this subject area, The Search for Income. So how do you rate equity income ETFs as a way to generate income? Yes, it is quite interesting because that we have seen the ETF market grow exponentially in recent years. And of course, with interest rates as low as they are and this reach for yield, the growth in income paying ETFs really is unsurprising. But I do think the important point here to remember is that not all exchange traded funds are created equally. And the important thing to know is to realize what type of tracking method the vehicle is using. Now, Kate pointed to three methods, one looking at future dividend payers, looking at past dividend payers, and then looking at stocks with a high current yield. Now, all of those have inherent challenges to them. The first thing is when you're looking at stocks with the highest current yields, those are often the stocks that are most vulnerable to a dividend cut. When a share's yield looks too good to be true, the amber light should start flashing. And we've seen that in the UK specifically this year with many of the big blue chip companies in the FTSE 100. Names like Anglo-American, Glencore, Standard Chartered, BHP, Billiton. All of these companies had double digit yield figures, but they've all suffered dividend cuts since. Now, the important measure when you are investing for income is dividend cover, the relationship of dividends to the profit from which they paid. And I haven't heard any of these ETFs really looking at this. This is actually the key measure. The other thing that I realized was this this focus on bond proxies and the concentration risk. In uncertain times, a lot of investors have been sitting in these bond proxies and they are actually quite expensive at the moment. There's a lot baked into the price. And if any of these companies, we're looking at things like Unilever, Record Bank Kaiser, if those companies disappoint, investors are going to bear the brunt. And of course, the ETFs with exposure to them too. Yeah. I mean, another thing that occurred to me was the fact that um, a lot of the funds are quite new. Are you concerned that a lot of these ETFs are fairly new and don't have much track record? So really, we don't know how it's going to pan out. Absolutely. When we talk about active managed funds, we always encourage investors to look at a fund with at least a three to a five year track record and to look at the manager as the manager managed to outperform in different market conditions, bear markets, bull markets. And I don't see why an ETF should be any different. You want to have some form of track record. Now, the big promise of ETFs are the low costs, and these have really seen investors piled into these funds. But the danger is that investors buy ETFs without really understanding the risks. And the risks are manifold. There are things like tracking error, the difference between what the ETF delivers and, and the benchmark that it's tracking, the construction of the ETF, as I explained, the charges involved because these trade like shares. So when you buy and sell them, you incur costs. And of course, the robustness of the counterparty backing the ETF. 
And then a key thing for income investors to remember is the currency in which the ETF is denominated. So some of these vehicles might be denominated in US dollars or in euros. And if you're a sterling-based investor and you're receiving your dividend distributions in sterling, that will have an impact. And then there's also the legal status of the ETF. If you're not holding the ETF within your individual savings account, your ISA, that will make a difference whether you pay income tax or capital gains tax. Now, there's obviously concerns about that area and and general concerns about equity income. So in this difficult environment, what are your favoured methods for generating a good income stream? All the worries taken into consideration. I do think dividend paying shares are still one of the best ways of generating an income. And I think what I would highlight is investment trusts. Now, we recently heard that the City of London Investment Trust became the first investment trust to celebrate 50 years of dividend growth. And I think this really demonstrates the superior ability of investment trusts to keep paying an income even in tough times. And the reason, of course, which you'd be very familiar with, is the revenue reserve. Closed-ended funds have this ability to retain up to 15% of the income that they generate to build up this fallback fund. Now, not all investment trusts have a revenue reserve. It depends on how long the fund's been around. The City of London's origins can be traced back to 1860, so it's had a lot of time to build up that income. But if we look back in 2010, and I always use this example, BP suffered a very unexpected oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. It had a lot of liabilities and it had to cut its income payment. And because a lot of open-ended funds had exposure to BP, it was one of its top 10 holdings there to cut their income. In contrast, investment trusts who held BP could still dip into their revenue reserves and maintain their income payments. And I think that's why investment trusts really are a very good vehicle to generate income with. Okay, investment trusts um, have a revenue reserve. But one for is um, one of the ones you mentioned, City of London, it is focused on the UK. And like we said earlier, there are a lot of dividend cuts here. Do you think UK is, is still a good place for income? Or where would you say the best areas and regions to go looking for equity income at the moment? Well, as investors, we do have a home bias and we do tend to trust our own market more. But I do think it is worthwhile taking a global approach to income investing. And I think particularly Asia looks very interesting. So the region has a far larger, more diversified pool of dividend payers than you might expect. So if you look at the index, the MSCI, Asia Pacific, excluding Japan, Around 95% of the companies in this index pay an income. And Asia also leads the pack when it comes to that holy grail for income investors, which is income and growth. Now, Lion Trust Asset Managers did a very interesting piece of research. They looked at the Asia-Pacific region and they found that there were 165 companies that had a prospective dividend yield of more than 4% and future earnings per share growth of above 10%, 165 companies. Now, in comparison, the UK only had 33, continental Europe only had 62, and Japan had a measly two. It was only the US that beat Asia with, and, and then by a very small margin with 174 companies. It's not a new story. It's a story that's been going on for about two decades. And there are a number of open-ended funds in the space, Asia-Pacific, excluding Japan. There's a Lion Trust Fund. There's a Newton Fund, which is probably the best-known fund. Newton Asian Income. That's yeah. it. And we've mm. recently seen the manager of that fund, Jason Pitcock, move over to Jupiter. Yeah. 
to launch a fund that is focused <clears throat> on the Asian income story. So definitely one to keep an eye on. It's interesting. Um, now, Kay, you actually didn't just look at UK equity income ETFs. You were looking ones across the globe. Um, where are ETFs finding good opportunities? Are they, are they also doing well in Asia or is there another region that um, seems to be fruitful for equity income ETFs? I had a look at yields and total returns and I think in fact the best all-rounder has been Europe which is also the area where ETFs have the longest track record here. So I mean they've kind of outperformed on both yield terms and total return terms over the long term and there are kind of a lot of products there. The UK is the is the area where they're kind of short track records so that might be one to be a bit more cautious on and the yields are very high so again you know maybe some warning signs there particularly when we have been talking about so many dividend cuts in the UK and the US is quite an interesting one because in fact the yields are not very high the income has not been much above the S&P for many of these ETFs. But in total return terms, some of them have, have really outperformed, um, particularly power shares, S&P 500, high dividend, low volatility, which is one of our top 50 ETFs. That's really stormed ahead. Um, and it's only got a kind of year track record again. So we'll have to see how it does in the long term. But I think Europe does seem to be the kind of standout. And obviously, with rates very low there, potentially an area where some of these bond proxies will continue to kind of outperform despite as Michael says despite being quite expensive so I think that's probably the the standout area here that I've seen. Okay some uh, really useful ideas there thank you Micah and Kate. Now there's growing concern about the damage that high charges can do to investors returns and as a result the regulator the Financial Conduct Authority says it will scrap exit fees on all new personal pensions from March 2017 and exit charges on existing contract-based personal pensions will be capped at 1% of the value of a pension pot. Emma, you've been looking at this. So first of all, do exit fees affect a lot of people? And yes, they do, Leonora. The FCA has done some data analysis and it found that one in six people um, over age 55, so approximately 670,000 people, um, are affected by if by charges if they were to draw the, withdraw their money from their pension pot before their retirement age. So yes, it does it does affect quite a few people, um, and it's a different kind of um, rates that people would be charged. Most people will be charged not two percent of of fees, but there are actually sixty thousand people or so who'll be charged more than ten percent if they were to withdraw their their pension pot early. Okay, I mean, that's a substantial number of people. Um, will these proposals make a difference to them? Um, yes, I think they will. Um, so, you know, this cap of 1% um, on existing pensions is going to make an immediate difference to people. But even in go- going forward from March 2017, the fact that there's going to be no sort of fees um, charged for people who want to remove their pension early, you know, that's that's going to make a big difference to people, I think. Okay. Now, um, in terms of numbers of people affected, we were talking thousands, not millions. So there's obviously um, a number of people who won't help, who won't benefit. Yes, you're right. Um, I mean, some of the pension analysts we spoke to felt that um, of all this, this cap is, is, as I say, going to help some people. It should have gone further in that, you know, it shouldn't be any, it should have put a 0% cap, as it were. Um, and that would have helped a, approximately at least another 150,000 people. But in addition, there's always people who are under 55 and who are, you know, have been saving into pension plans who might like to to use 
um, to transfer their pensions, they're not going to be affected by this change in um, the fees because it's it affects people who are over 55. And then um, the other issue is that you've got people who would like to transfer their pension pots, not for to use the pension freedoms, but just because they want to get a better deal on um, on the plan that they're currently in. And currently, the these changes are not going to affect those people because it's only for people who want to um, withdraw their pensions to use the pension freedoms. Okay. Now, um, you spoke to a number of uh, pensions analysts and um, I think they made some suggestions on how things could be better. What, what What's on their wish list? Yeah, well, it's it's comes back to sort of this point saying that, you know, they'd like it to affect more people. They'd like people who would like to transfer their pensions, to, you know, for, for the, for, to help them um, get a better or cheaper option to benefit from, from these um, from a cap in fees or scrapping of fees altogether. So that's one thing they'd like to see. Um, they'd also like to see it affect younger people, um, as I mentioned, under 55s. And yeah, so those are the, the main areas in which people we spoke to felt that it could be improved. Okay. Now, Micah, how helpful in general to consumers do you think these proposals will be? And um, is a 1% cap low enough? Well, I certainly think a 1% is much better than some of the numbers Emma mentioned as the highest 10%, which is really staggering. I think it's worth noting that a number of pension providers have already said they'll waiver exit charges, which means they'll have to write of these costs. I think the new rules do mean that all customers facing exit penalties are going to get a better deal, which is always welcome. Do you think the proposals go far enough for, or um, you know, what, what would you like to see? Well, I think it's interesting to understand how these exit fees work. So many exit fees are due to the upfront costs incurred by a provider when they set up a pension policy. And over the term of the policy, these costs are recouped. Now, if the policy is redeemed earlier on, then the provider has missed out on the chance to recoup all of these costs and the consequence of which is that they charge these exit fees. Now, with pension freedoms being introduced, it's meant that a lot more people are looking at getting hold of their pension savings, and as a result, they're triggering these exit penalties, so it's become more of an issue. I think while they're contractually entitled to do so, many customers have probably not appreciated these costs and the impact that they could have, and they will see this charge as unfair. It's a bit like when we've got a mortgage and and we have those early redemption fees. Yeah, obviously these proposals um, aren't going to come in for a while and they're not going to affect everybody. So is there anything consumers can do to mitigate the effects of these fees? Well, most of these penalties can, under the contract that was set up, can be justified as fair. I think few people who really bought pensions understood the full implication of these penalties. What is interesting, what we've seen at Fidelity is that there isn't any real evidence that exit charges, we don't charge any exit fees, by the way, I should mention, but we haven't seen any evidence of exit charges impacting an individual's decision to access their pension. In most cases, that immediate need for cash outweighs the long-term financial loss of an exit fee. And many people have mentally committed to a course of action, such as using their pension to buy a property or repay debt, and these penalties aren't tangible enough to alter that course of action. But I do think some people might be unaware of the fact that they have the option to get back into a workplace-saving pension and benefit from the employer contribution, and that should be communicated to them. Okay, some really useful points there. Thanks, Micah.
Now, over the past few years, Alliance Trust, one of the largest and oldest investment trusts, has hardly been out of the news as relentless pressure from activist shareholders has brought about a series of changes, including the departure of its embattled chief, Catherine Garrett Cox. And it's in the news again for a reason no one was expecting, a takeover offer from another behemoth of the investment trust world, Brit Capital Partners. No details of the terms have been provided, but the news has already had an effect on the trust share prices, up in the case of Alliance Trust and down in the case of Brit Capital. And investment analysts have mixed views on whether such a tie-up would be a good thing. Micah, do you think it would benefit the shareholders of Alliance Trust and Rit Capital Partners if emerged? Well, that is a tricky question because always with mergers and acquisitions, the key question is whether this will result in additional value for shareholders. Now, the thing with Alliance Trust is it's really had a torrid few years. And a merger with another trust surely makes sense. A rich is a very good trust with a very good track record. The question really is, uh, what does this mean for Ritz shareholders? So I think time will tell. Okay, what will be the possible downsides of a, of a merger? Well, I think you, you make this point very well in your article. These are two very different trusts. Alliance Trust is focused on equity investing and Ritz Capital Partners is more of a multi-asset fund. It's got a plethora of different assets. It's got unquoted investments. It's got hedge funds. And its focus really is to preserve wealth. Now, the problem is how do you bring these two trusts together? I do think that from the investor's point of view, if they merge, this will bring down the cost base and it will bring down the cost of investing, which of course is a positive. Do you think shareholders of neither of these funds should do anything in the meantime or wait to find out more news? I think the sensible thing to do would be to sit tight and, and wait for further news. Now, Alliance Trust has appointed a number of specialist advisors to go through all the options facing the trust and to find what would be the best course of action for the long-term benefit of shareholders. Now, such a strategic review will take months. And then in the case of Red Capital Partners, it has an unparalleled track record of capital preservation. It's not going to do anything to jeopardize that track record. We know that the Rothschild family is still about an 18% shareholder, and no one is better at wealth preservation than the Rothschild's family. If you are a shareholder in this trust, it's a very interesting and it's a very robust trust. I actually spoke to one of the, the managers from there not too long ago, and they mentioned that the trust is being increasingly used by investors who are nearing retirement and considering income drawdown because of this focus on capital preservation. So I think for now, this, the most sensible approach on both sides would be to sit tight. Okay. And um, yeah, I guess we'll find more about this potential tie-up in the weeks to come. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast, so it just remains to thank Micah Curry, Investment Director at Fidelity International, and Investors Chronicle Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bailey and Personal Finance Writer Emma Ajimang. You can read more about equity income ETFs, pension exit charges and Alliance Trust and Rit Capital Partners potential merger in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. <laughs>